Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hi, everyone. I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. Um, I've been sexually sober 36 years and 10 months. And uh, let's open with a moment of silence for some deep breathing. Exhaling, inhaling, exhaling, and then the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. God, uh, I offer myself to you. Me, grant us the serenity we cannot change. We cannot change. And the wisdom to know the difference. To know the difference. Thy will not mine be done. Amen. Thy will not mine be done. Hi, everyone. Um, what can I tell you? I screwed up my schedule a bit and just got off a hour and a half presentation on the prayer of St. Francis. Now I'm looking into the first step. So bear with me as I breathe uh, in a bit. Um, when I suggested we do this, I said we're doing it through an entrance through different doors. What do I mean through different doors? Well, the classic way is step one, we're powerless and our life becomes unmanageable. And what does it mean? And what does this mean? And that mean? And as you know, last week, I did not go there. I went just the opposite door of asking the question, how can we be powerless when we have willpower? We have willpower. So how can we say we're powerless? And then I suggested that this week you all do some homework. And read the doctor's opinion. I'm not going to spoon feed you this stuff. It doesn't work. It won't work. I'm not here to convince you you have a disease that takes your judgment and willpower away. Where you are powerless. I'm not here to try to convince you of that. 
Matter of fact, hopefully a little later, I'll give you some tools to convince yourself. It's no sweat off my back if you don't believe you're an addict. Go act out all you want. We're not a prohibition society where we're against masturbation, we're against pornography, we're against (laughs) prostitution. We're not a prohibitionist. We're a fellowship of men and women who acknowledge we're not normal people because we have an addiction, a disease, which makes us unable to do what most people could do. Most people could drink alcohol, as I said last week. They even use it religiously, but I can't do it successfully. I'm allergic to it. I break out in insanity. Instead of a rash, I get insane. That's how my disease manifests. So last week, I told you to look up the doctor's opinion and to say, hey, that's why it's first before even Bill's story in the AA book. We also, for those who missed, talked about that the essay book is not our basic book. It is the AA book, the first 164 pages and the 12 and 12. And I read to you where Roy himself says it in the essay book. And that's what we did last week. Now, this is not an essay meeting. This is a workshop. And so that has given me the ability to put on for the chats readings if you want to read them. One is called Pleasure Unwoven. This doctor did a video, used mountains and like the Grand Canyon to show what chemicals are affecting us, what chemicals, especially dopamine, and chemicals to make us remember the pathways, and that's causing us to have an a rough time with judgment. The other article, hopefully, is from Hazelden that has the biological basis for addiction. If you want to read it, fine. If you don't, don't. If you want to keep thinking you're bad getting good, go for it. It didn't work for me. I had to truly believe I'm sick getting well. And that I'm not like other people. Having said that, you're going to expect me to start talking about step one now. But I'm not. I'm going to tell you why most people don't get this program. Why the steps don't work for them. Most people cannot Get the steps where it keeps them sober. Now, when I say most, I don't have a statistic. I just have the experience 
that when you go to a meeting and you go on a vacation, you go on a trip, and months go by, you walk into a room, there are so many new faces, and you don't even see some of the old faces. And after a year or two, you can't even remember the old faces. There's so many people come and go. Why does that happen? Because in the big book, there are five paragraphs before you even get to the steps. It's called How It Works. And there are five paragraphs before you even get to the steps. Now, how can you do the steps if you can't do those first five paragraphs? Doesn't work real well. And I want to give you a little interesting, I counted, let's see how many times, but in the first five paragraphs of chapter five in the A book, it calls the steps so many different things. First, it calls it a path. Then it calls it a simple program. Then it calls it a manner of living. Then it finally says certain steps. How can people get this simple program, go on this path, live this manner of living through the steps without doing those first five paragraphs? So this this 30 minutes approximately, before we have the questions, is going to be about those five paragraphs with three main things. This, it tells us the first sentence. Rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path. So why the heck do so many of us fail? Why is relapse not an exception, but appears to be a rule? What is it? Well, the first paragraph has this amazing word repeated three times. What is that word? Honesty. Three times in one paragraph. So rare you find that in the book. It says... Men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Then it says, manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. And then the last sentence of that paragraph says, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. It said you could have the worst mental illness and get sober. Only way you can't get sober is to not be honest with yourself. Wow. Self-honesty. What is one of the most dishonest things I discovered 
people, especially who relapse and other people who have difficulty going deep into their steps. What is it? They're dishonest. They won't admit they want to stop acting out, but they don't want to stop lusting. They want to stop the consequences of acting out, but they don't want to stop lusting. There's no shame in not stop wanting to stop lusting. The problem is the dishonesty about it, where you tell yourself and other people in the program, yeah, I, I want to stop lusting. When you have absolutely no intention of stopping to lust. Because you truly believe the problem is not the lust, the thinking, the thoughts. It's your acting out. So what's the solution for that? It's so simple, most people won't do it. And people who do do it later on will call me or write me thanking me for this suggestion. Just tell God your truth. Just tell God your truth, the God of your understanding, whatever it is. If you want to be a doorknob, whatever the heck you want. But tell him the truth. Tell it the truth. God, I really don't want to stop lusting. My higher power knows what I'm thinking before I even think it. So who am I lying to? Myself. When that happens. To be just simply able to say, God, I'm not ready. I really don't want to let go of lusting. I don't want to masturbate. I don't want to get a prostitute. I don't want to do pornography. But I don't want to stop lust. Until one could admit things like that to themselves, how can they get honest with themselves? And then you wonder why the steps aren't working for you. First of all, the first step isn't talking, as you've heard me say time and again, isn't talking about pornography, sexually acting out, masturbation. It doesn't mention acting out. It mentions only lust. That is our drug. And by the way, that's one of the differentiations between us and other S fellowships. All these fellowships have, are valid and help lots of people, but they emphasize acting out. Our program of SA says, no, the allergy isn't to acting out. The allergy is to lust. So naturally, what I'm bringing out here is start, start being honest with yourself. God, it's so freeing to be able to say to your sponsor, I'm willing to do a lot of things, but I can't imagine my life without sexual fantasies. How will I go to sleep at night? 
how will I help myself throughout the day? See a beautiful woman, a handsome man. What would my life be like without carrying that person with me all day? There's this beautiful story I've shared before from the East about this guru, this master, and his disciple were walking down this road. And there was this big mud puddle. And this beautiful woman with this large dress and, you know, like royalty in India. And she couldn't cross the puddle. So the the master, this guru, went and lifted her up and carried her over the pond and put her down and went along his way with his disciple. And about two miles later, his disciple said, Master, Master, I'm so upset. I don't understand it. I'm really torn up. Master, you weren't even supposed to touch a woman, and yet you picked her up and held her and put her down on the other side. And the master said, yes, yes, disciple. I picked her, I touched her, I picked her up, I put her down, but you're still carrying her two miles down the road. That's lust. How am I going to live without carrying the woman or the man in my head? That's where the process of withdrawal comes. Because your brain, when you have a sexual fantasy, is helping to produce dopamine, which gives you comfort. Temporarily. And that dopamine, when you're not getting it after you've gotten addicted to enough of it, you go through withdrawal, just like if it were heroin. And your body thinks it's dying. And you'll do anything when you think you're dying, subliminally. What's the next one? By the way, someone please let me know when about the 30 minutes are up. What's the next major thing? There are three of them in these five, five paragraphs. It said, if you have decided, well, here's the fourth one. If you have decided you want what we have, who the hell wants what we have? In the beginning years, who in their right mind wanted what I had? Do you know we'd have scream outs at meetings? We'd be yelling at each other. We'd be a bunch of kooks. And newcomers would come and say, I don't want what they have. 
In AA, you go to meetings, you see people with this glow, and you say, man, I want some of that. So what does that mean in practical terms? How important it is to have at least two people at a meeting who have some sobriety. And if you don't, newcomers are going to say, I don't want what they have. So how do you get around that? You do a lot of reading at the meetings from the book. You don't end up having a total drunk meeting. And meetings can get totally drunk. How? By being in the problem and not the solution. Do you know what helped Nashville? I think one of the most important things. Those many, many years we used it, and it's in the meeting guidelines. We did not let anyone without significant sobriety shared during the first 30 minutes. You couldn't share. You had to wait till towards the end of the meeting. When you first come in, you got to learn to take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. But we're too gentle in our approach. Oh, man, no one would say that to someone. That's a real no-no. You got an AA. <laughs> That's one of the kinder things I'll say to you. <laughs> it was called the sobriety imperative. And if you want to review it in that same book, it is there. By the way, I told you that I'd check it and I'll need help from you all. This I did check the essay book, and I could not find where you have first step meetings. And not first step, where you give your first step as a separate meeting, necessarily. Maybe some of you could find it. Because with my dyslexia, it's real easy for me to miss something, but I couldn't find it. This I certainly wasn't what we had originally. A lot of these things have become traditions within traditions. So you want people that want what you have. Well, if you're lusting your head off and you say, I'm sexually sober, but the woman or the man in the meeting see you rubbernecking to look at them all the time. Wow. My wife can tell a, a drunk, sex, tr- sexually drunk guy or gal immediately. She gets a special feeling. I've experienced it. One day, what many wives or husbands have to experience from our active disease I was in Atlanta at the International Conference. I was in the lobby with a deep discussion of a guy who had some sobriety, a bit of sobriety. And in the middle of our conversation, some gorgeous woman passed by. 
and he was lost. He couldn't get his eyes off of her. He kept looking, and I experienced this horrible feeling. I was invisible. I disappeared. The middle of this conversation that was so intense, he's off into his active lust. Now, by the way, with our program, you could say you're sober. You could lust out of your mind. But if you're not having sex with self or sex outside your marriage, you could say you're sober. You could be standing every night in front of a window watching a woman get undressed, be a voyeur, get aroused, and come in to the meeting next day because you had a masturbated orgasm and say, I'm sober, when you were totally drunk. And if you don't think it applies to pornography, don't fool yourself. (laughs) I wish you luck. (laughs) I once asked a group, what is it when you're watching pornography, you get aroused, but you don't have an orgasm? What do you call it? I call it sex with self. No one's in the room. You're getting aroused. But someone yelled out, what do you call it? I said to them. He said, fun. (laughs) The problem is that fun doesn't last for more than a little bit. And then you go into the cocaine down. You get the high and you go into that awful down. How often I would masturbate and feel I'm going to do this for hours. And then right afterwards, get this down that I didn't know what it was, was the endorphins going down. And I get the shame and the discomfort. And I'd say, I'll never do it again. Until the endorphins built back up and I needed a bigger shot. It then says, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it. Bull crap. People aren't willing to go to any length. Most people aren't. You're too worried about your someone finding out about you. My sponsor once said to me, many people lost respect for his when he was drinking, but no one ever lost respect for his recovery. People know when you're sober. And if you're telling them, I work a recovery program when it's appropriate and you tell them on lust. I've never seen anyone 
get up and walk out of the room when I'm sharing it. They might never talk to me again, but no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. You know, I, I come from a small city. I had a prominent professional job. And there were only two of us in Nashville at the time. And I had to go everywhere, even where I worked and broke my anonymity. I had to be willing to go to any length because I was dying. And it says, then you are ready to take certain steps. Now, then it says, another word about honesty, with, with all the earnestness, honesty at our command, we beg you to be fearless and thorough. And here's the main one. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go. Absolutely. Keep thinking you're bad getting good. Go ahead, keep thinking it. Keep refusing to let go of old ideas. If you don't want to think you're sick getting well, that you have a damaged limbic system that's not like other men and women, keep doing it. Wish you well. It didn't work for me. I had to accept I have a physical allergy accompanied by a mental obsession. I'm allergic, I'm not, but it's as if I'm allergic to peanuts. And I fool myself in thinking that I don't have to look at the food ingredients to make sure there's no peanut allergy. I bet peanut oil in the food. Peanut oil. Lust is the peanut oil. Acting out are the peanuts. The peanuts are obvious. Oh, I see a peanut, I better not eat it. It's going to any length. Letting go absolutely that I have to check the ingredients of everything I eat to make sure there's no peanut oil in it. It's so simple, most people don't get it. There are many people in this fellowship who have eating disorders, who have certain religious dietary laws, and they will check everything but they won't apply it to their lust allergy. Um, The last piece, and then we'll stop for questions, is the toughest, toughest one to get to let go of old ideas. Half measures avail us nothing. It doesn't say 
Half measures give us a half. It doesn't say that. In other words, we have a expression in America, you're doing it half-assed. The program won't work. You cannot do half the program and expect to get half the results. You get nothing, nil. The word is nil, nothing. So until people are willing for their first step to say, this is why I'm powerless. It's not from my evilness. It's not from my badness. It's from my allergy. I'm not like a normal man or woman who could lust. I'm allergic to lust. And as I said last week, and I'll end this, we know we are not allergic to sex. We're allergic to lust. How can I say that? I'll say it again. Most old timers have sex with their wives. If we were allergic to sex with our wives, how can we still be sober? We'd be drunk all the time. And we, it would have to carry out into other things. And nowhere can I find in the essay book where he says he's allergic to sex. How can I infer this? And I shared this yesterday. I have a sponsee meeting. We all get together. And I was sharing it yesterday. How do we know this about Roy? This Roy and all those stories in the essay book are Roy. A lot of people don't realize it. You know, he's been dead many years now. But the book, he wrote this book. And the stories in the essay book about the guy and his wife, the stories in recovery continues. That's Roy's stories. Now, what does Roy say? He says, in my abstinent periods, he does not say I've been abstinent all these years. In his abstinent periods which implies there were times he was having sex. I can't guarantee it, but it implies it. And to my knowledge, Roy was transparently honest. We would be talking to each other on the phone, and he would just be as transparent about anything to do with his addiction at that moment as can be. So to conclude before the the, uh, questions, study those first five paragraphs. 
study it, see how it applies to you. And now, in these last moments, Mr. Forgot, I had promised you what I was going to do. I'm going to tell you how I have my sponsees do their first step. Somehow, the first step an essay has turned into autobiographies. What good does an autobiography do? You're already in essay. You know something's wrong. So why do I do a first step with my sponsees? And how do I do it? It's for them to not convince me they're sex addicts, but to convince themselves they're sex addicts. And we do it very simply. On one side of a sheet of paper, there are lines. And on each line, first I have them write on top of the paper, God, write this for me. And then underneath, I have them say, I am powerless over lust. And then I ask him to put one, two, three, four, five, only on one side of the sheet to prove to themselves how they know they're powerless. Like saying, when I got married, I promised I'd never masturbate again. And within a few weeks, I was masturbating again. To keep it so simple It is a simple program. Don't complicate it. It's a simple program for complex people. And when you get complex, you're going into your head that's damaged. And you're thinking it's already damaged. So you want to keep it so simple. These are the ways I know I am powerless. And then on the other side of the sheet, I have them do man. My life becomes unmanageable. What does the word manageable mean? It's a business word. It's a business word, manageable. So I have them list how many times in their life they masturbated how many hours they use for pornography, how much money it costs them over the years. I have them do manageability, how many hours they use, how much money it costs them, how many frequency. When I wrote these things down, I knew I was not a normal man. I could not deny it to myself. This is about not denying it to yourself. Getting honest with yourself. Most men, by the time they're 44, have masturbated periodically or much more when they were teenagers. Not me. By the time I was 44, I had masturbated approximately 7,000 times. 
once I saw that number, once I saw how many sex partners I had, once I saw how many prostitutes, I did part of that unmanageability in two to three miles of radius around my house, how many sexual episodes I had with other people. It then becomes obvious. No one has to convince you. No one could convince you you're ill. And until you could break through the dishonesty with yourself, it's going to be hard acknowledging to yourself and to God, to other human beings, I am powerless over lust and my life becomes unmanned. Question time, please. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, Mike, uh, and I'm a sexaholic, sober since uh, 22 October of uh, 17. Uh, and um, Harvey, this just really hit home for me, uh, and has been a um, a part of my success these past three years. I've been around nine years. I've had two years sobriety and four and a half years. Um, of sexual sobriety, but I would uh, be on the couch rubbing um, uh, my penis to erection, but not ejaculation and mythid and excuse my language, but I call my disease a motherfucking insidious disease because it works 24 seven, 365 of ways to kill me. Uh, and I came to the point of suicide and finally my wife of 38 years asked me to move out and that's when I was hopeless. Uh, and I've really concentrated on all of our chips on the back of it has to thine own self be true. And I looked at those uh, first five paragraphs that you mentioned about honesty and I'm a liar and I believe my lies. Um, and I guess the question is, um, how in the world can I go four and a half years and believe in my lies and having this insidious disease um, have me in an illusional state that I was okay when I was very, very sick. Um, and uh, I really had to get honest with myself and um, I can't allow any secrets to stay up in my head. I have to get those out and tell them to my sponsor and to others. Um, uh, and I don't know if you had uh, some time in your experience where um, you, were at, you were at that state, uh, but um, you know, I met with my sponsee uh, five years ago, I guess now, and I just was in a funk, you know, and his sponsor uh, told him, you know, that he should fire me, which happened to be you. And I'm glad he didn't. But um, I probably needed to be fired because I wasn't where I wasn't working the program. So, um, Mike, it, here's a word that you might want to use. <laughs> I stayed drunk. I was legally, in quotes, sober, but I was totally drunk. So let me say that one more time. Let me give you an example. I have people who call me from all over 
this. Our sponsors don't say call Harvey. Because they can't get sober and they have a day maybe or two and they're calling me. And I say to them, I really care about you, but I can't talk to you until you're sober for two weeks. Because you cannot hear anything I'm going to say to you. And then I explain to them that if an alcoholic is drinking a gallon that day and the next day and then calling someone when he still has all the alcohol in him, he can't expect to hear what's going on. I get more people who actually stay sober because they want to talk to me two weeks later. They're willing to go to any length. I don't know what happens after that. But when, and I think more people, for women, they, they're going to have to equate this for their chemistry. But once you get an erection, what is producing an erection? Certain chemicals are coming in to release blood to that area because an erection is merely blood in that area rushing in. Once that happens, certain painkillers, endorphins, start shooting up. One of the most difficult things I have to communicate to people and men is when you're sleeping and you wake up with an erection, it does not mean that's to masturbate. It means you got to go urinate because it's one of the things that tells you you have rapid eye movements. But we misinterpret because we're so used to those endorphins shooting up. I cannot afford those endorphins because they produce the phenomenon of craving. Now, forget anything about an erection. Let's just go to fantasy. They have done tests where from fantasy, the brain chemistry changes. So you're getting something like heroin when you're in lust fantasies. And then the phenomenon of craving. Other men who don't have this addiction might not get the phenomenon of craving, but we do, which means we must do it again or go through withdrawal. I cannot go to a Mexican restaurant and eat one taco chip. Why not? I have willpower. Because the minute that taco chip, the salt, the flour, and the oil touches my tongue, especially the salt, a chain reaction happens that produces a phenomenon of craving, and you've got to eat another one, just like potato chips. Try eating just one potato chip. 
Now, people will accept this concept for everything except lust. Because lust has a religious connotation to it. But we have no better word right now. If I wish Roy could have said sexual fantasies. <laughs> but it turned into the word lust. I cannot do sexual fantasy successfully. It's that simple. Cannot make them not come in. The first photograph. You cannot prevent that first photograph. But the minute you let it turn into a movie, a cinema, the phenomenon of craving begins. So it's not the first thought that is my first drink. It's what do I do with that first thought? And what's the answer? The 18-wheeler. He... Roy gives you 18 suggestions. Some of them work for me, some don't. I found the ones that work for me. But it's in the chapter, How I Overcame My Obsession with Lust. To take that first thought, Jess would say, the first thought is on God. That's how he made me. The second thought is on me. Okay, next question. Uh, and yeah, we have a lot of questions. So let's try to keep the questions short. Obviously, we can't keep the answers short. Um, and by the way, Harvey, the uh, step one meeting is actually brought down in the pamphlet called First Step Inventory, which is an essay pamphlet that was brought out. But I actually I actually heard it. Brought, Jess talks about it. In his, in, in, that's how they used to do it, the very early day, early days. So I guess that's where they got it from. But it's an essay pamphlet. It's not in the white book. Thank okay. You so much. Yeah, so I couldn't find it in the white book. So thank right. you. Go ahead, Dave J. No, I don't. I don't want to leave this. Be careful when you go to a f- first step briefing where someone's doing their first step. Number one, if they just have a week or two. Be sure they've done it with their sponsor first. The main thing is to do it with your sponsor. In a group setting, it could get kind of rough. And many people who do it too early to a group, I find sometimes don't come back. It gets too erotic. There are certain things that I could not write down when I first came in because I would get aroused as soon as I wrote them down. They were too, I was too new in the program to even (laughs) go too deep into it. So be careful. And also be careful of your motive. If there's an attractive woman, be careful you're really going in to help her out, not to get off on it. Because we can't trust our thinking. In my case, 
my heroin would be like 25-year-old, 20-year-old, 25, 20, you know, adult young men. I don't go into first-step meetings of young men. Because I can't trust my motive. I always have to be on guard for what is my intention. So I have a trick I use. If there's a young man across the room, I'm referring to young adult, meaning a young adult, and he's saying something, and all of a sudden I say, gee, I could really help him after the meeting. I could really help that guy. I'd then say to myself, if he were 75 years old, would you want to go across the room to help him? If I answer yes, I still take someone with me. And I share for a few moments, and then I leave that person with the other guy. Now, I am a heterosexual guy. I don't have to prove it to myself or anyone else. But my heroin are young adult men. It's that simple. I don't know why that happened. It evolved over decades. All I have to do is be honest with myself. And then I could make boundaries to protect me from my disease. My program is about love thy neighbor as thyself, loving me by protecting me with boundaries. So I don't have to leave myself vulnerable to an incurable disease that I will die with. Okay, next question. Thanks. I think it was Dave, right? Um, the, had a question. I, I love how you separate the different types of acting out into different types of drugs, knowing what my heroin is, what my marijuana is. It's like really works for me in my program. Was it? Yeah, go ahead, Dave J. Hey, uh, thanks. Um, yeah, this really hit home because, you know, I've stopped eating peanuts for about five months, but uh, I drank a lot of peanut oil in five months, you know. And uh, I haven't masturbated or watched pornography, but, you know, I've continued to lust or objectify or hang around a photo or picture or look, double look, triple look within those five months. Um, It makes me think, number one, am I even sober? And number two, does, does that mean every lust hit that I take I'm resetting some sort of sobriety. I'm not working this program correctly. Um, and, you know, how, how to do it correctly, how to work it correctly, where I'm not just stopping the peanuts, but I'm also stopping the peanut oil. Roy, I feel, was divinely inspired with this very special statement in the crucible of our experience (sighs) 
in the AA book, they call it progress, not perfection. Once I see a new pocket of my lust that I hadn't seen before, okay, that's a spiritual awakening, not a put down. And then I need to be willing to go to any length, any length. And if that doesn't work, I have to be willing to put it for a bottom line. So, as some of you might know, um, if I have sex too frequently, I have a number uh, that's not that frequent, but I have to be careful because of my history with my wife. Um, if I do it more than my, what that is, that's a loss of my bottom line sobriety. If I purposefully go into a health club shower room, that's a loss of my bottom line sobriety. Because I know I can't do it successfully. But there are other things that I don't have as a bottom line. Another one I have is if I go into a pornography store, except to pull one of you out, if you call me. If I go into a pornography store, that's a loss of my bottom line sobriety. But that was from the crucible of my experience. Because I once went to a health club with a few months of sobriety, and I almost acted out. <laughs> it was through the crucible of my experience. When we come in, we start on the ground floor about masturbation. Because we can't identify lust while we're still masturbating, because we're so drunk. And Roy calls it, the top plate. You cannot see the plate underneath until you've taken off the top one and then a new top one, a new top one. So over the years, I have seen more top plates and then I make boundaries. I'm not going to go into detail, but there are certain things that I am not, I don't stay successfully comfortable doing with my wife. I've had to learn boundaries within the marriage bed. So these are general principles, not shame principles. But chances are if you hang around a barbershop long enough, you will get a haircut. If you play around with sexual fantasies, for men especially, can't talk for women, you will have a spontaneous ejaculation or watching pornography and not touching yourself. You will get a spontaneous ejaculation and then you're going to have to feel uncomfortable. You're going to have to tell your sponsor. You're going to start shaming yourself. All that stuff, that's not the program. The program is, hey, I'm allergic to lust 
and pornography is part of lust. And I need to protect me from my disease. Now, I asked Roy, why was he so vague in defining sex with self? Asked our founder, because he was not eventually that vague with what is marriage, but he was very vague with what is sex with self. And he looked at me and he said, because this is not a religion. How are you going to define it? How are you going to define pornography when some guys, maybe gals, get off on underwear ads? Everyone's dressed. How do you define pornography? Only you know your truth and your intention. So much of this is about intention. I don't watch nudity on TV. I screen my stuff, but every now and then nudity shows up. My intention wasn't to see nudity. But I turn around and I know that's not the program for me. I don't make a big deal over it. Next question. Oh, we're about ready to end, and then we'll continue the questions for 30 more minutes <coughs> so people can have a boundary for their time. And I'll remain here for another 30 minutes or so. Um, let's take in a few deep breaths. Next exhale. By the way, we will be doing step two next week, but not in the classic way, I promise you. Serenity prayer. God. Our God. God. And, and wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, not mine be done today. Amen. Thy will be done. We're going to carry on with questions. Um, Harvey, I remember in, the, in my, my sponsor, I think he says in your name that uh, we're addicted to arousal. And that really kind of encapsulates what you were just saying, I think. Um, that the, the actual addiction itself is to that. Uh, is to is to getting around. It made a lot of sense. I've heard it called sensation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think arousal is the uh, sequelae, the result of the brain chemistry of lust. Any other arousal is usually physiological for sleep, etc., for eye movement. But you're not going to get usually aroused unless you're a real teenage kid or something. <laughs> but 
unless there's a thought that precedes it. Most people miss the thought that precedes it. Uh, you know, Malcolm's talk, etc. cetera, uh, workshops, we were really introduced to this concept of, you know, mindfulness and observing the thoughts. Most people don't not only observe them, they don't even know they're having them. How are you, Shim? Uh, sexaholic uh, from Lambeau Field, usually in New Jersey. I'm kidding. I'm in New Jersey, Lakewood. And I just want to thank you for all your service and how much time and effort you put into the program. And I could just speak for myself that um, how much you've meant to my recovery. Um, and I'm also happy now to know why whenever you come over to me, you always come with another person with you and then leave me with the other guy. Now I understand. <laughs> Yes, the question, and and I wrote it down because I want to be succinct, um, and it's about the first step inventory and the pamphlet that SA has, because it is SA approved literature, and I've heard you say that you don't go to SA um, to first step presentations for your own sobriety, and I've heard you say that. So I guess my question is that like in Alcoholics Anonymous, they don't have this public first step. Uh, tradition of giving over a first step to the group. And here we have this pamphlet. So I guess it's a two part question. Number one is like, what, like, can you were there when the program started? Can you share with us um, how that essay tradition began? And do you, are you in favor of it? And how come you don't go to them? He actually answered this quite a bit last week. So instead of for the sake of not repeating it, I mean, Harvey, you can add something, but he, you went into it last week and a few weeks ago as well. Uh, which him unfortunately missed, but you can add to that. Just well, um, I have no opinion on it. If it's working, don't fix it. So if it's working for groups, why even worry about it? And what we had in those early years were what's called, and we still have them, although we have the classic first step presentations too. We had a first step meeting, a first step meeting where people went around the room and told why they're there, why they were there. And then towards the end, we asked, would you like to share why you're here? Now, my concern isn't on the uh, technique of doing it. My concern is on what's the intent of doing. If the intent is another one of many ways of de-shaming, great. If it works. But the intent is for me one and only one thing. For the person to convince themselves they're an addict. Does it work? Well, I have about 18 sponsees and they all have significant sobriety. I have two with over 35 years. You've told them to do the first step with a group? I I tell my sponsees to only do one thing in a group for sure to do that third step in a group do that third step prayer in a group um 
I think first, the first step needs to be given to your sponsor. Number one, the sponsor then needs to be able, because he knows the person. So if the guy is telling him, here's my first step, and I'm still watching pornography, that he's essentially giving his first step while drunk to the group. If you want, but we have and are willing to go in any length. But it's so important not to say, what does Harvey think about it? The issue is, what is the group conscience and is it working? We have no leaders. We have no people who know more than another person. We have group conscience. So this isn't about a right way or a wrong way. It's just, how's it working in the group? Is your group getting significant sobriety? Are these people who are giving first steps maybe doing it a little prematurely before they have enough sobriety? Are they facing, is this just a exhibitionistic time to share all their exploits? Or is it a time for them to prove to you and them, but especially to them, that their life is unmanageable? That they're sick getting well? Now, Shim, are you still there? Yep. Shim, I'll give you an example from your communities where everyone knows each other. Do you really think you're going to get an honest first step publicly? That's a rhetorical question, right? Yeah, it's only rhetorical. I don't really want an answer. And by the way, in small towns, this isn't only your community, in small towns around the world, it's tough. There are some groups where you only have little towns. So I don't have an answer. I think it's good to do for people to get it out. Now, I want to tell you a little story. I sponsored this guy for three months, and he calls me and he says, I can't bear telling you this, but I've been holding back. And after about five, ten minutes, he told me about his foot fetish and shoe fetish. I won't go into it all. And I had him keep repeating it to de-shame it to me. And then I said to him, now tomorrow... I'd like you to share it with the group. It's a de-shaming process. And he said, no way. But the next day he shared it in the group. And afterwards, uh, so many guys came up to him to thank him that they were embarrassed to talk about it. Now, after decades, he gives talks all around 
essay into that in a roundabout this one topic on fetishes. So it's not a, a cookie cutter program. That's one of the most difficult th- things to get across. It's not cookie cutter, and it's not a religion, and it's not a special ritual. It's based on the individual and on your experience, strength, and hope, and your objectivity, which is difficult. A lot of people call me who do all kinds of stuff, and they think it's okay for them because their sponsor does the same stuff and gives it a hexer, gives it a, okay, this they're doing it. We're a bunch of drunks. We have no experts here. We're all pioneers. And letting go of old ideas is thinking we have experts. We don't. We have a bunch of recovering drunks. And we're all pioneers. Okay, enough? (laughs) Okay, go ahead, Eric. Yeah. Hi, Harvey. Always great to see you and to see you doing well and uh, to hear you. Uh, So I like the the fact that you touched on the point earlier in your talk about coming to meetings and why we come to meetings. And some uh, somehow I uh, I I flashed on the on the, the passage in Roy's Surrender and Accountability where he's talking people come to meetings so they can live with themselves for the rest of the week. They come once a week or whatever, you know, and that's not exactly as, as he's saying it. That's from my own experience. Uh, so what you're referring to is people have to reconcile with their own lust first and then stop thinking about, well, I have to stop acting out because of course that's not the, what, what is the, the central tenet of our program is lust. Right. Um, so when you are working with people, and I know that you've worked with people in all, all shapes and sizes, uh, places, how do you get that point across to them that, you know, it is, and you went into great detail, and I know you went into some of this, that it is, it's chemical, it's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual. But how do you get that point across that it's not the behavior, it's the lust to, to act out with the behavior? I share my experience, strength. I tell them my journey. I tell them sometimes I give my story in three parts. I give my story in... Let's say all I ever did was masturbate. I still needed the program. And I tell my story accordingly. If I just was the acting out, how I needed the program. But I also share how I needed this program for lust. How it started in my head. How it grew the intricacies, the secret thoughts I had and how it progressed. See, lust progressed just like our acting out progressed. 
And I need I needed to go back and see how it started with thinking about my girlfriend. And then how the fantasies went to African-American gals. And then how my fantasies would go to group sex. And then how the men started coming into the group sex. This is all in my head. Now, there's an interesting concept. If we're created, created in God's image, it means we could create. How do we create as human beings other than through propagation? They say, if you have a thought and you keep repeating it and you attach a feeling to it, it becomes real, actually becomes real. Now, who's known for this especially? Basketball players. Basketball players just don't go on the court and shoot three-pointers. They've done it so many times in their head that then when they get on the court, they're not doing anything new. That's what our lust did. We created our acting out as this spiritual entity of being able to be created in God's image. So another example is when you see a skyscraper. A skyscraper isn't that building you see. The skyscraper is that thought in the architect's head that he did over and over and connected a feeling, and it's created. We do not give enough emphasis to what the mind can do, even though it's not real. Okay? So lust is, is such an important, uh, important concept for us, and it's the least spoken about. There are two main topics that are hardly ever spoken about. Lust and sex and marriage. It's like it's not happening. And if you bring up lust at a meeting, I've seen it over the years. Within about 10 minutes, people talk about lust for cars and lust for more money. It goes totally away from sexual lust, which is why we're in the program. Okay? I get a little passionate on this topic and... Yes, you do. Thank you. <laughs> and in case you're worrying, he's he's uh, you're interested. He's using a filter for his lips. He's not got lipstick on. He's got it set for some weird purple thing going on. I could do it bright pink, but I might scare you out of the room. Okay, uh, go ahead, Thomas. No, I want to say something else about Roy's about the essay book. I really went through it with. He rarely uses a word sexually acting out by itself. Over and over, he'll say lust and sexually acting out. Predominantly, he'll say lust. But when he says sexually acting out, it's usually accompanied first with the word lust and sexually acting out. Roy, I I believe that... 
He was divinely inspired. What could I tell you? That this man was chosen to bring to the world a concept of addiction related to our sexual fantasies that now MRIs, not MRI, PET scans are showing is quite accurate. I look at it as divinely afflicted, but yeah, I think we're on the same wavelength there. Yep. Divinely afflicted, <laughs> you said? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to take that one, but... <laughs> Jess called the White Book the most inspired piece of writing in, in the literature, in, well, in 12th literature. I'd like to bring it to the topic I spoke about a few hours ago, the prayer of St. Francis, that we are channels. We use a term divinely inspired, but another way of thinking of it is we are vessels, and if we empty ourselves through the steps and our ego gets less and less, we become a empty channel where whatever the divine is, it can work through and then be passed along, just like water gets passed in a pipe. Thanks, Harvey. Yeah, um, um, it's good to see you. I've been listening to your podcast and stuff. And um, I suppose you're talking about lost here, like, and um, for me, like, I've been acting out years like but for the last 10 15 years like and it's any kind of hitting me no acceptance around that i am a sexaholic like you know and i hear a lot of people talk about lust and acting out and no sex before marriage and like is there a difference between acting out with a like, my acting out goes in every direction, like, and it's like, I'm a bit lost around lost and stuff. It's like, I can't catch what's going on in my head, if that makes any sense. Like, sexually, I'm not as sexually attracted to men or women or nothing. But then it's like, I'm just driven I, to act out, to relieve stress, anxiety, fear, shame with prostitutes or I get off with something in my head upstairs when I masturbate. I have to get masturbated to a hit in my head, if that makes any sense. Like and is is, is that lost? Or like what is it like, you know, I'll be very confused around this stuff. You know? Tom very you, you described a drug addiction beautifully. You've described how when you have anxiety and tensions, it comes in and it helps. It helps settle you down. That's a drug effect. One of the best drugs ever known is nicotine. When you're tired and you smoke a cigarette, it gives you energy. When you're exhausted and you're tense, you smoke and it will relax you. It does both things. Remarkable drug, except 
within two hours, you get into withdrawal and you need another cigarette. That's why movies are usually never more than two hours when we used to have theaters open. So for many of us, lust, masturbation especially, and the lust that precedes it, it was a drug for us. So I used it every morning to give me energy. I used it throughout the day as a tranquilizer. And then I used it at night to put me to sleep. Beautiful drug. But somewhere along the way, my best friend turned into my enemy because it needed more. Any addiction needs a higher dose over a period of time because of the withdrawal and also, which I didn't talk about in the in the other meeting, there is Marcel Proust, Proust this French uh, author, wrote this beautiful little story called The Mandolin. The Mandolin. That's a little French cookie. And he says in the story, when he was a little boy, his maid gave him this little cookie. It was so good. And for the rest of his life, he searched for one that was as good as that first one. Now, in one of those references I made, Pleasure Unwoven, he shows you what happened in the brain to this author and to all of us. It gave him that taste, opened up a new dopamine pathway that never existed. I had it with my first cigarette. It opens up a new pathway. And then another part of the brain remembers that sensation. But you can never get that sensation again because it was a brand new pathway. Brand new. So for the rest of our life, we're trying to get the same effect, which we can't. So we have to increase the dose. We need a bigger dose to get that same effect. And the body builds tolerance. This is in, by the way, where Roy talks about withdrawal, tolerance, etc. And the same thing applies to lust. I needed a bigger dose to get the same effect. And so that's how I ended up with men as well as women. And even with the men, I needed bigger doses. It's so simple, most people won't get it. Because you can't let go of your old ideas that you're a sinner. You're a sinner. It's like saying a diabetic is a sinner for having diabetes. If that model worked, 
which it really should. The religious model works for many, many things, but it does not work for diseases. It really doesn't. Or else all the clergy and rabbis and imams and, you know, uh, priests, whatever, would be able to get rid of this for us. Not only can't they get rid of it for us, many, 10% of them have the same disease. <laughs> this is a familial, it runs in families. It just does, like alcoholism. Now, don't take this just from me. Read the essay book in the first part of the book. It has the addiction model. The first part. Now, why do we even talk about it? Because it's been the most successful approach we have discovered in the last what, about 90 years or since 1935, nothing much new has been statistically as good. Now, why can some people go to church, give their life to Christ, and be cured, or some Jewish guy or Muslim or whatever get involved in their, their religion, and it works for them? How come it works for them? Statistically, they weren't sex addicts. They were sexual abusers, just like with alcohol. If a kid goes to college and he's drinking and going wild, he's indistinguishable from an alcoholic. But once he leaves his fraternity, he goes home, many of those people don't have the problem. So I want to tell you this, what happened with Vietnam. The guys in Vietnam were using a lot of heroin. The government was really frightened when they were coming back after the war that there would be a heroin epidemic. It never happened because only 10% of those guys were really addicts. Just like only 10% of people who drink are true alcoholics. And it didn't happen. They left the army. They left where their buddies were using it. They didn't use it again. So we are not normal men. It says it in the AA book. We are like men who have lost our legs and can never grow new ones. So Thomas, you might not be a sex addict. But if you are, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it cannot go back to being a cucumber again. I hear you. I get you. I get you. And by the way, you're a young guy. Uh, Find other young people in the program. I sponsor a guy since he's been uh, from 20. He's now 25. There are other young men who have to go through this realization and you need a support group. Make sure you find people. 
who could be with you on this journey, who are going through it and doing well. Okay. They've actually started a weekly meeting on Zoom with uh, people under the age of 30. So there's a whole Wonderful. community going on. Yeah, it's amazing. And All right. people who are single. That's also. the one that's really needed. Because okay. my Sponge C meeting a few days ago, we had someone talk about dating. Sober, a guy who, one of my sponsees who dated sober and got married sober. He has now three kids. And he gave this talk. And it was a wonderful meeting of sharing about sober dating and sober marriage. I mean, not absent marriages, you know, but getting married. This, this program is not about being a monk. It's about having your life manageable and dealing with an incurable progressive disease like alcoholism. And I've been sober in, thir- in uh, AA for 37 years. I know these programs work. Sober over 36 years in SA. I know it works. And don't think I don't get discouraged when I see a lot of relapsing. And then I have to remember, and I'll say to myself, maybe the program doesn't work. And then I'll say to myself, Harvey, what are you talking about? You are a hopeless drunk. It's worked for you. You know it works. Sorry, Harvey. It's always a pleasure to hear you. I, I used to live in the U.S. Now I'm in North Africa. I want to ask you two small questions. The first question is about a sentence we always say, don't regret the past, but not wish to shut the door on it. Um, If I don't shut the door completely on the past, I always have regrets. Uh, How do you reconcile these? I asked my sponsor and some other fellows, but I never got a response that really works for me. And the second thing very quickly is that you said, that uh, I have seven years of sobriety now and I need less doses of lust to get a temptation. Uh, I heard, I thought I heard you saying I need, if with recovery, you need a higher doses. Did I understand you right or not? Thank you so much, Harvey. Sure. No, good point. No, I said, e- even though I don't lust today, and I'm less free today, I know this is an allergy. It's underneath. It's just waiting for me. So I go to even more meetings than I did before. What do I mean? If you have a penicillin allergy and you get a rash from penicillin, and you don't use it for years and years, and then they give it to you by mistake, you get sicker when they give it to you by accident, even though you hadn't used it for decades, because the antibodies, the soldiers in your blood have been increasing. So I assume underneath my disease is getting worse, so I have to be 
even more careful and be sure I still take medicine of this program because my brain could lie to me and say, oh, you've been sober over 36 years. You don't need to come to these meetings. It's a lie. Okay? That's terrific. What about the question about don't regret the past, but no wish to shut the door on it? If I leave a little bit of a crack, I always regret the past, and that's not healthy for me. Anything, any idea about that? It's very important. There's such your story. And all you got is your story. We're not here to lecture people, to tell people you better do this, you better do that. All we have is our story. That I was a low-bottom drunk. I tell you what I did. And then you stop regretting it. Why? Because of what my sponsor taught me. Harvey, if you missed even one of those low-life things you did, if you missed even one, you wouldn't have been ready to come to the program. So it took exactly what it took to get me here. We had to let go of our old ideas. That's a little twist on everything. It's saying- I hope to see you in North Africa, Harvey. The what? I hope to see you in North Africa. I hope to see you in any of them. I'd love to start traveling. What part of North Africa are you from? Tunisia. Tunisia? Oh, wow. The closest I got was when we went to Gibraltar in Spain. (laughs) 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 But I see it in movies. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. By the way, in the meeting this afternoon, there were like 13 countries represented. I'm sure we did more than 20 today. Numbers of people, but this Zoom, and you know, like I was sharing, we could regret there's COVID, but then again, without COVID, I would never have met you. Behind everything our brain tells us, we got to think the opposite. My sponsor would say, whatever you're thinking, Harvey, do the opposite, and statistically you'll come out better. So my brain wants to say, oh, that's COVID, it's making life so terrible. And the, No, I would never have met you, Emil, if it weren't for COVID. And that's what we do with our disease. It's how to make fertilizer out of cow dung, cow manure. My sponsor always said, how did we learn the multiplication table? By repeating it over and over. And I just have one story. I presented a little different each time, perhaps in context, but it's always the same thing. Mm. We just shift the context 
but we have all yeah. things joined. And that's, yes. that's how it goes. That is how it goes. Well, it was another. It was another good one. Well, you always say that, but I'll listen to you, even though I'm paranoid and it's hard. For me. <laughs> Malcolm's been sending me these wonderful books, and I'm not good at taking gifts, but they just open up my worldview even more, <laughs> and it's just beautiful. For th- I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.